This is the waves. 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 Welcome to the waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and our complicated relationship with fitness. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me, Shayna Roth, a podcast producer for Slate, including for The Waves. And today, I'm joined by journalist and author of the new book, Let's Get Physical, Danielle Friedman. Danielle, welcome to The Waves. Hi, it's great to be here. I have been dying to talk about fitness and these sort of complexities of wellness on this show for a while now. And your book is really interesting to me because it tracks the evolution of women's fitness and different types of exercises that women haven't always been able to participate in. And I've had a fraught relationship with fitness from fad diets to spurts of exercise followed by long stretches of not doing anything and then feeling depressed. And what I loved about your book is that without being a sort of like rah-rah, let's all exercise and feel great book, it got me into that headspace. You had a lot of different parts throughout it where it just reminded me that exercise can just be about me feeling good and not necessarily about looking good. I also think part of it was because you brought up a lot of trailblazing women. I wanted to start off just by asking you, what got you thinking about fitness and feminism in the first place? So there was a pretty organic origin story here. Um, I'm a lifelong runner, but about five years ago, and I'm always kind of a little bit sheepish to tell this story, but I was actually getting ready for my wedding. (laughs) And so I decided to take my first bar class to venture into a a boutique fitness studio for the first time. And I was surprised by how good and how strong the classes made me feel, but I couldn't, you know, I'm a feminist journalist, a women's health journalist, and I couldn't kind of take my journalist hat off while I was there. And so I was struck by the fact that many of the moves in class were almost like comically erotic, but there was this very serious attitude and no one seemed to acknowledge, you know, when we were pelvic thrusting that there was anything abnormal or just different about it. And so anyway, I decided to investigate. I was curious whether bar could actually improve sexual health. I went down one rabbit hole after another and I stumbled on the story of Lottie Burke, who is the woman who invented what became bar in the late 1950s. And Lottie Burke, it turned out, was this incredibly complicated, larger-than-life figure. She was a former dancer who had fled Germany to avoid Nazi persecution in the 1930s. And when she invented her workout, it was pretty explicitly to help women improve their sex lives. She also, you know, she was also selling it as a way for women to develop long, lean muscles and all of the things that we still hear today. But in her own small way, she helped to fuel the brewing sexual revolution that was about to, you know, explode in London. I was totally riveted by Lottie Burke. I ended up writing about that origin story for New York Magazine's The Cut. And while I was reporting it, I at one point was like, you know, I'd love to talk to the person who wrote the book on the history of women's fitness. And I was pretty amazed to discover that that book did not yet exist. I delved a little deeper. I discovered that in so many of the fitness movements that laid the groundwork for 
exercising today, there was a Lottie Burke-like figure or a Forrest Gump-like figure, you know, these interesting pioneers. And I also appreciated that, you know, I was drawn to the tensions that you mentioned and the fact that fitness is so fraught and that there are so many mixed messages there. I was, you know, sort of intrigued by the challenge of attempting to untangle them and to and to learn how they got so tangled in the first place. And just to have a better understanding of why women feel, you know, both obligated and inspired to work out in the ways that we do today. Yeah, and I think your book definitely delves into a lot of that. And we're going to get into both the history of exercise that you talk about in your book, as well as later in the show, we're going to talk about where the fitness industry stands today. So stick with us. You're listening to The Waves. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey, listeners, if you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're there, check out our other episodes, too, like last week's fantastic show about the anniversary of the Women's March. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm here with Danielle Friedman, author of Let's Get Physical. Danielle, I want to start out by talking about the uterus myth, because (laughs) this was something that I was not familiar with, but apparently, as Recently as the 1950s, people still believed that if a woman physically exerted herself too much, her uterus would just fall out, (laughs) which is wild. But as you explain in your book, this was really an effective way to ensure that women kept within that acceptable frame of being, you know, sort of frail and delicate. Can you talk us through that myth a little bit more and how it was able to be overcome? Yes. And the first time I learned about that myth, I kind of thought, oh, maybe this that was just like this one woman's experience. And then it was this refrain that came up again and again as I interviewed women who grew up in the, you know, 40s, 50s, and even 60s. My book begins in the 1950s, which it was the post-war era. It was a time of really strict gender norms as men returned from war and there was this sort of push for men to behave like men, whatever that meant, and women to behave like women. Well, it was largely interpreted as men needing to be strong and women sort of needing to perform weakness to an extent. Um, Women were encouraged to leave the jobs that they had taken while men were away at war and really return to the kitchen. It's important to understand the context, you know, in which some of these myths spread. And so the uterus myth was part of this larger belief that if a woman really exerted herself, tested her strength, you know, exercised vigorously, she would, quote, turn into a man. That was the other sort of phrasing that I heard a lot. And for some women, they believed that that meant it would they would grow hair on their chests or grow a mustache or they would develop you know, quote, big legs, that was a real fear. And, uh, you know, or it would make their uterus fall out or all of the above. I think that the uterus myth is really interesting on a deeper level, because sort of like, 
symbolically, it, it would be literally losing something that's so associated at, at that time, you know, with with femininity and with having children and with, you know, which for many women at the time was sort of their, their main um, reason for being. So I think that women's strength was very threatening at that time. Um, the idea that a woman would be bigger, more powerful than the man in her life really kind of threatened to shake the social order. So they, they served as a very effective barrier for many women of reaching their potential. I thought it was so emblematic of a sort of larger thing that has happened throughout history with women where it's, we have this idea in society of like, what makes a woman a woman? And if there is something that would, that we don't want her to do in order to be stronger or more challenging to the societal norm, we just say, well, you're not going to be a woman anymore. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, I think at that time in, in, in the post-war era, certainly throughout the 1950s, you know, the options were still so limited for, for what a woman's role, what a woman's potential could be and, and what her role in society was. So women were just taught to really prioritize being feminine, being ladylike, and ultimately, of course, in the service of being pleasing to men. That's key. So this gets into a passage of your book that I read, and when I read it, I groaned, and then I nodded along because it's uh, it's just still true in many ways. Uh, it was your chapter called Reduce, which focused on Bonnie Pruden, who is one of those trailblazing founding mothers of fitness for women. Can you can you read that that section for us? For some women, these early fitness programs helped to combat what the feminine mystique author and feminist icon Betty Friedan had dubbed the problem with no name, the malaise and longing for self-determination so many wives and mothers felt by encouraging them to connect with their bodies and suggesting their happiness mattered. But they also reinforced it, sending the message that wives owed it to their husbands to be in tip-top physical form, and it was their job to ensure their husband and kids stayed fit too. Fitness was becoming one more item for women to add to their never-ending to-do list. I feel like the idea of fitness is another part of my never-ending to-do list is something that a lot of women, even today, can really identify with. So when you wrote that passage, talk us through sort of like, what were you thinking and what were you trying to say there? So on one level, I was I was interested throughout this whole project in exploring, you know, how exercise went from being taboo and discouraged to becoming what feels like for many women, as you said, a requirement of womanhood, you know, a should something that that can really feel like a chore, and how that that evolution happened. Sort of throughout the whole book, there are those dual themes of fitness for empowerment, for self determination and realization, and as a tool of the patriarchy, really, and the beauty industry. And so I was thinking about Bonnie Pruden, um, who had a one of the first TV fitness shows in the 1960s, um, as well as Jack LaLanne, who I don't really get into too much in the book, but he also had a very popular um, daytime exercise show, one of the very first in the 50s and 60s. And I was thinking about how um, 
their sort of pitch was they were telling, they, they absolutely were targeting housewives. Um, it aired, their shows aired in the morning and they would say, hey ladies, you know, put down the broom for a minute, <laughs> come over here and do some squats with me. It was pitched as kind of a break from their daily chores, a way to feel invigorated, to feel alive and to, and to shape their figures. And so it offered many women, not just these, not just the TV shows, but some of the other programs that began to arise during that era, you know, an opportunity for the first time since girlhood to kind of reconnect with their physicality and to take time out of their day to focus on themselves. It, it was self-care in a kind of contemporary way that didn't really exist then outside of like going to the beauty parlor, you know, or doing things that were just purely kind of leisure. And I began to hear from women that I interviewed about how this novel concept throughout the mid-20th century to become stronger was really empowering for them. But as I say in the book, it, of course, it carried this sort of mixed message of maintaining their honeymoon figure, as it was called. It was this sort of very new and in some ways empowering message. But at the same time, you know, it, it made it so that women felt an obligation to exercise. And then it was interesting to see not only how women started to feel exercise as an obligation, but it seemed that with each new exercise, there also became a commercial aspect to exercise. And you saw capitalism really starting to play into this with, you know, charging for classes with, uh, you know, different clothes, you had sponsors, you had workout videos. And a lot of the people that were making money, yes, a lot of women made money, but I would imagine that a lot of the people behind those extra layers of exercise were men that were really profiting off of telling women, you need to stay in shape. You know, it took a while for the industry to really um, kind of blossom into something more closely resembling what it is today. A lot of that happened in the 1980s. But um, yeah, as with so many other parts of our you know, society, many of the power brokers were men. And I also look at like the women's magazines that were often um, selling throughout each decade what the ideal body should look like and how to achieve it through, you know, exercise tools and and the advertisers that were reinforcing the message that a woman, you know, needed to change to be loved. I think about and I talk about in the book, there's this one issue of Cosmo. I believe it's from 1972. Um, and it's when Helen Gurley Brown was in charge. And it's just this, it's just like stunning and kind of how, contradictory it is. You know, there's this one article about how women athletes are actually really talented too, you know, and we shouldn't be shortchanging them. And then like a page later, there's this ad for, it's like a full body slenderizing wrap that looks like a mummy, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, mummification. And, um, and, you know, many of those mixed messages persist today. But it was really interesting to see the culture sort of try to work out what exercise could and should mean for women. It's all really complex in more ways than I had initially anticipated. And one of those areas, too, was it seemed like with each milestone, there was also an undercurrent of income inequality and systemic racism that prevented 
all women from really taking part in the next wave of different exercise methods or fitness trends. I mean, even running, which you would think is is for anyone with a pair of shoes, it's actually not available to everyone when you think about, do they have a safe space to do it? When we think about fitness, in a lot of ways, historically, it has been a very white person dominated, white middle class to upper middle class, especially dominated area. A kind of present day myth that is starting to be unraveled, thankfully, you know, is the idea that we can assess or judge a person's health and fitness level by the way that they look and that their health and fitness is exclusively in their control, in their power. And so I hate when um, a lack of fitness is attributed to, to laziness. It's always more complicated than that. So yes, with something like running, um, I think that offered a really, looking back at the the birth of the the running boom and the women's running boom in the 1970s, there were some examples of really, um, really pretty horrific racism that uh, held people back. And like you said, a lot of it was just lacking that safe space to move around in. The running pioneer Marilyn Bevins um, has talked about how when she would go for a jog, she would have to endure having things thrown at her beer cans thrown at her, um, you know, racist taunts. And she ran with a transistor radio. This was pre, of course, like iPhones and even Walkman. And um, that helped to drown out some of it. Um, and, And so I think there are a lot of these kind of hidden or not so hidden barriers that have only reinforced and deepened some of the chasms that exist in our society when it comes to access to healthcare. I'm so glad that you mentioned the health aspect of all of this because we're going to take a break here. But when we come back, we're going to sort of dig into where fitness is for women today, including more on that myth that thinness equals health. So stay with us. You're listening to The Waves. And if you're enjoying the show, check out our Waves Plus segment, Is This Feminist?, where today Danielle and I are going to talk about whether yoga pants and athleisure wear are feminist. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. 
Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. How do you feel great on vacation? Like, really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. We are back. Danielle, I wanted to get into where fitness for women is at today. I know personally, and I don't think I'm alone in this, exercise is still, first and foremost for me, a way to prevent extra pounds, a way to stay on the slimmer side. And when I work out, I often have trouble going into it as something that I'm doing just because doing this is going to make me feel good. Instead, I'm like, oh, how can I get the most bang for these minutes that I have to spend on the bike or the rowing machine? What is the exercise that's going to you know, burn the most calories? And I'm sure a lot of people, especially women, have historically felt that. We've talked about exercise as being a means for women to maintain a certain view of beauty. Uh, but I'm wondering, in your perspective, is this getting better? Are more people exercising just for the joy of it, do you think? Well, I will say that over the past five or maybe 10 years, we have started to see a very real shift in the way that many fitness professionals talk about about exercise and about what women might hope to gain from it. I always think about this one founder of a popular fitness franchise who told me that when she looks back at videos that she made, you know, 10 years ago, where she would motivate students by talking about getting rid of their muffin top, she just absolutely cringes because she would never say that kind of thing today. So there's been this shift toward, you know, focusing on strength, on empowerment, um, and on wellness. <laughs> we should be skeptical of that shift as well, because there is this also this trend of kind of commodifying strength and feminism. But I do think it's a start. It has allowed many women to start to untangle the reasons why they exercise and what they, you know, what they do hope to gain from it. I'm always hesitant to kind of um, praise social media when it comes to women's bodies and body image because it can be such a minefield. But I do think that the rise of social media has done a lot of good when it comes to promoting a type of women's fitness that is about everything but changing the way you look. I always think about a quote from the body acceptance activist Virgie Tovar, where she said that on this topic, social media has given a voice to those who have always been been the strongest in number, but but not in power. And and it's created a two-way conversation. So when I when I look back, having studied the history of women's fitness, you know, for so long it was just this one-directional sort of message where women's magazines and pop culture, even fitness professionals to an extent, were kind of telling women how to look, how to get there, and women really attempted to abide, whereas now there's been this very real pushback, which has led to so much, you know, more body diversity, 
and an expansion of our idea of what a fit body looks like. I don't want to oversell this. There's still a huge, you know, we have like miles and miles to go. But but it does feel like a very real, the beginnings of a very real shift. And so as far as like whether more women are exercising for joy, I mean, many of the women I interviewed, when I asked them why they exercise, young women especially, it was, I, I heard like for, for my mental health, I think, more than anything else. You know, it's possible that because of the world we live in today, people don't want to necessarily like say out loud that they're also exercising to um, change the way they look or maintain the way they look, um, especially if they identify as feminists, you know. But, But I think there's something really powerful about that. Working on this project just caused me to really think deeply about my own motivations for exercise and to try to have an awareness so that I was able to kind of derive as much joy from movement as possible. I also just want to say that, you know, like science has shown that we're most likely to to exercise and to stick with a regimen when we have a really clear-cut incentive. And so I have a lot of compassion for the desire to work out to, to change the way we look or for, you know, for a makeover because it's a really sort of clear incentive. And to me, it's almost kind of like the lowest hanging fruit of, of incentives. <laughs> Everyone loves a makeover story. You know, we're drawn. It's, it's sort of human nature to kind of want to be bettering yourself. And it can be a lot more fun to think about than like, I'm exercising to prevent heart disease, you know, or <laughs> <laughs> so that my back doesn't hurt in 20 years. And it's much more tangible than being like, I am trying to improve my mental health, whereas, you know, you can like see the physical sure, as opposed to the mental or, or my wellness, you know, or like well-being. Yeah, it's it's much more tangible. It can feel more fun. And, you know, it's like there's the question of is there anything wrong with that? I, I think that being really clear eyed about why we're wanting to maybe, you know, change the way we look or even maintain a certain size or shape, you know, can just be a good first step in in harnessing exercise and movement in a way that makes us truly feel good. One of the things your book touches on at the end, and we kind of briefly discussed this a little bit, is is fat phobia. And the modern trend of claiming gyms as fat-friendly spaces. And I say fat because, as you pointed out in your book and as I've heard in other spaces, that is the term that this community wants to use. Talk us through what, honestly, I think may be one of the biggest transformations in the exercise industry that we've seen in a long time, which is embracing all body types. I think it's starting to happen. You know, I think you can look at certain markers like the fact that major, major athletic retailers from Athleta to Nike to even, dare I say, Lululemon um, are starting to (laughs) showcase models who represent a much wider range of sizes than just a few years ago. Now, this trend has limits. Uh, There was just a fantastic article that I... I was interviewed for uh, in self by Kelsey Miller about the state of fat phobia in fitness, which I highly recommend everybody check out. And in, in that piece, you know, she talks about how like, yes, but the sizes that are offered are still are still more limited, much more limited than they should be. So there is progress. I think people like Jessamine Stanley, who I um, had the opportunity to interview for the book and profile in the book are doing 
a world of good. Jessamine self-identifies as also as being fat. And she talks about how when she first started posting uh, images of herself doing yoga on Instagram, and she yoga is her realm, um, she would get responses like, oh, I didn't know a fat person could do yoga. You know, and she's like, yeah, we can do all kinds of things. I think that those communities exist more now than they than they have in the past. And for people who are, you know, looking for a safe space, a welcoming space to move, there are options now, which is a good start. But I think that especially outside of progressive circles, there is still this really deeply ingrained idea that the only reason why a fat person would want to exercise would be to become smaller to shrink. You know, I think there is more, thanks to the health at every size movement in particular, there is more of a cultural understanding and uh, and an understanding among progressive physicians what a fit body looks like. But we're at the very beginning of starting to really shift that um, cultural perception. What do you think is the current state of the fitness industry? And I guess, where do you see it going next? Are we headed in a great feminist, joyful, inclusive direction? Or do we still have, you know, a lot more bumps along the way? Uh, Both. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I think, you know, I mean, I wrote this book during the pandemic. I started writing it in February 2020. (laughs) And um, the fitness industry, you know, obviously has changed tremendously during that time. And I was, you know, it was a challenge to try to kind of stay on top of it as I was writing. And one trend that I have observed and something I've heard anecdotally just from interviewing people is that, you know, because the pandemic has led led them or led so many people to kind of take stock of their priorities and reevaluate the way that they're spending their days, there has been a shift toward a, a gentler approach to exercise and to movement. Um, I think before the pandemic, there was this kind of, I don't want to, it's not, it's not, I don't want to talk about it as if it's like fully in the past tense, but this, um, this drive toward optimization, this kind of millennial-led drive to um, make our workouts feel like work, you know? And if if we aren't always like moving up to the next level and drenched in sweat, it doesn't count. And, you know, here we are two years into the pandemic, we're exhausted, we're burnt out. I think women especially, you know, are just like, feel, you know, are are seeking refuge wherever they can get it. And for some people, you know, doing a HIIT workout and losing themselves in that might be just what they need. But I think a lot of people are rediscovering just just gentler forms of movement, going for a walk outside, you know, running at a pace that feels good for them, exercising in a way that is truly for them. That's not about shaping their body for anyone else or not about working out in any performative way, but just in a way that feels good. So the sort of um, the walking renaissance <laughs> is, which which I, you know, I've seen like a, a number of head- headlines and just coverage over the past new books, few months about, about the beauty of walking. I think that is um, 
that's significant. So, you know, it's a story that's still unfolding, but I am hopeful about the direction that it's headed in. Well, before we head out, we want to give some recommendations. Danielle, what are you loving right now? And what do you think our listeners should uh, partake in? My recommendation is kind of a geeky one, but (laughs) I recently discovered and I've, I've started watching a number of films from the early 1930s. So these are pre-Hollywood code films from the 1930s. Love that. And yeah, I'm, I'm a lover of classic cinema, but I had never, I hadn't paid, you know, I hadn't like paid too much attention to the differences in films from before and after the famous Hollywood code, which, um, you know, which uh, imposed all of these rules and censorship on films. And so I've been really surprised to find that some of these these films from the first half of the 30s actually feel like more modern than films from the 1950s, um, because they're just more, they're a little raunchier, they're looser, and so much fun. Um, in particular, um, I, I've become, I've become a, a real fan of William Powell. Um, <laughs> of the thin the thin man series and, and other and other uh esteemed films but if you're looking for something very different and entertaining that that is my recommendation for right now besides the thin man series what is one movie that you would recommend yeah i just watched this 1932 film called jewel robbery um with Kay francis and it's only it's like just a little it's actually short it's like a little over an hour super fun i don't want to give too much away but it's it's available on tcm right now if you want to check it out awesome i am going to keep in with our fitness theme and recommend yoga with adrian which i'm sure a lot of people are familiar with her maybe you've done some of her videos but i highly recommend doing more yoga with adrian videos I am someone who has had that millennial mindset of, I need to go at 110% if I'm going to exercise and I need to sweat, sweat, sweat. And Adrian has really helped me, particularly right now when I need to be doing more gentle exercises, to just be like, I am just going to do the yoga and I'm going to enjoy the yoga. And it's okay if I don't need a shower afterwards. I'm still moving my body and it's still it's still good for me and it's still breathing and it's still happy. And her videos are just, she's just a delightful human. She's funny. She's, she usually has her dog with her, which <laughs> I get a kick out of. And when I'm doing yoga with my daughter, she really enjoys seeing the dog. So I highly recommend uh, checking out Yoga with Adrian. She's on YouTube. The uh, episodes are free and she has an incredible, incredible amount of, of yoga for all time lengths and places to focus on your body. You really can't go wrong if you're looking for some yoga. Yeah, I find her kind of instantly calming. Um, yes. I hear her voice. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I love that a lot of times she's like, just throw on some cozy clothes and let's go. And I'm like, that's, thank you. That's what I need. I love it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Danielle Friedman, your book is Let's Get Physical. It's fabulous. There's just so much great knowledge in there. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today on The Waves. Thank you so much for having me on. 
That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by myself, Shana Roth. Susan Matthews is our editorial director with June Thomas providing oversight and moral support. And if you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content of shows like this one. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, you can go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at thewaves at slate.com if you have ideas for shows, for guests, or you just want to chat. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topics, same time and place. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.